How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Waterfowl 365 presented by BTBN. I am your host, Chris Adams. However, you are listening to this thing, make sure you hit that subscribe, follow button, um, leave us a review. Whatever you want to put on there, just leave us a review. I really appreciate it. You can follow us on social media under BTBN on Instagram and Facebook. And, uh, yeah, that's the best place to keep up with when the new episodes are dropping and that good stuff. If you want to get yourself a paperweight of a duck call, you can check us out at Unstable Calls, Instagram and Facebook as well, or any of the uh, other great call makers that I have on here. They might not make as good of a paperweight, but it's just as good of a duck call. It just might not hold down your stuff in place. Yeah. It's another uh, another Wednesday here in Missouri. Been a busy, busy, busy day, man. Hit up the gym, been out in the shop, had to go do some freaking Walmart runs, which everybody hates. Drives me nuts. I uh, I text Mr. Raggio, I don't know, an hour ago. I was like, hey, man, when are we going to reschedule this thing? Oh, yeah. We got to get it back on the books. And he's like, what are you doing right now? <laughs> I was like, I-, I can make it work. So, uh we're going to try to do something a little different here. We're going to uh, get Josh on, and then we're going to try to do a, uh, a two-person interview with me on here and get his father, Ronnie, on. And he's kind of a legend in the waterfowl community, knows a, a great deal of the history, and obviously he knows everything embarrassing there is to know about uh, about Josh. So it'll be interesting. Hang with us if there's any kind of technical difficulties because, like I said, it's the first shot at this thing. So... I'm pretty excited for it. So, without any further ado, Josh Raggio and Ronnie Raggio. How's it going, everybody? We have Josh on here, and uh, we've been trying to make this thing work for a couple weeks. And uh, I, hit, like I said in the little intro, I hit him up today to see if we were good to go, and he's like, "What are you doing right now?" And I was like, "Dude, let's make it happen." And uh, there's a game on tonight, and his dad. Mr. Ronnie Raggio was coming over to watch the game, and he was like, dude, you have to have my dad on. He's got a wealth of knowledge and experience, and I was like, how have we not thought about that before? So I was super stoked to get him on here, and uh, it's the first podcast that Josh, your dad, has been on, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think it's the first one. I think it's the first one. So, uh, Is it the first one you've had, like other folks on at the same time yes sir it is uh it's very it's working out really well we had a little you know we got to figure stuff out for a little bit but it's worked out really well and let's bring your dad on how are you doing mr raggio hello doing well chris thank you for having me appreciate it it's an absolute honor to have you on here sir well i've uh, listened to some of the podcasts and enjoyed them and I've never done this, so you guys bear with me. I'll just do as best I can. Yes, sir. You'll do a great job. Now, Mr. Reggio, and Ronnie is his first name. I don't know if that I mentioned it on here, but uh, that's just kind of the way I talk. You were into competition calling for, it seems like, 20 years and even got yourself up to uh, working for the director of the, uh, the regionals for the state of Mississippi. Is that correct? Well, yeah, it, it, I really kind of got into the competition part of it kind of late in life, actually. I had always enjoyed, you know, duck hunting, and it always 
guys enjoyed the calling aspect of it more than anything. And uh, actually, my wife, for my 40th birthday, gave me a trip to Stuttgart to the World Calling Contest. So that was kind of my first exposure to competition calling. And uh, I'd always been fascinated by it. And of course, we hunted in the woods and that kind of thing where we were relying on calling quite a bit to hunt. And uh, anyway, so I ended up, I think Josh was 12 at the time. And uh, I took Josh with me and a couple other buddies and we went to the world. We actually hunted a little bit up in Swamp Stuttgart. And uh, so that was kind of the beginning of my uh, exposure to the the competition uh, aspect of it, yeah. And that was, I guess, if Josh was 12, and Josh, you just turned 40 last month, so what, 19, or 2001? Yeah, uh, I'm 67, so y'all don't laugh. I was born in 81, so yeah, probably 93? 93. I don't know where Uh, I got it. Yeah, I was was trying to remember who actually won the world that year. Uh, I don't remember because I fell asleep on a trailer (laughs) listening to the contest. Yeah. I had no... That was in the old days. That was before the stage currently was built. And uh, that was on the... uh, I mean, what would you call it? Like a portable stage, per se? Is that right, Dad? Yeah. Well, they actually had a bus in the back. Yeah, they had the bus. You know, the whole thing, you know, even now, I think the terminology is getting getting your ticket. Well, that came from the callers waited in an old school bus back behind the stage. So was, I think that's where it came from anyway. But, uh, so, uh, then, I think the stage was more or less a big old flatbed. I, I'm not sure. I think it was a little nicer than that, but, but it wasn't, not what it is today, for sure. No, it, it was on Main Street. I think you're right. You're, it was a flatbed with, uh, they had built a stage on a flatbed. And, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I do, I, I actually have a vague memory of falling asleep on another flatbed that was parked on Main Street as the calling contest was going on. And you guys yeah. were watching it, and I really didn't give two craps about it when I was twelve. Obviously, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. y'all were into yeah. it, so yeah. Yeah, it's probably about midnight by then too. So you know, probably, yeah. <laughs> you're right, probably. probably. And we had hunted, you know, all day or half the day, and anyway, so it was great fun. Though it was uh, that was kind of if you were a duck hunter, and, and I think still holds true for Stuttgart. Uh, you know, it was a place for anybody that really loved duck hunting and all stu- all duck stuff. That was a trip they need to make and still do, I think, you know. Um, now, was that your uh, family's first time? Obviously, that was Josh's first time up at Stuttgart. Uh, was that your yeah, first time, sir? It was, it was my first time, too, actually. Uh, I remember. So, um, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, that was that was my first hunting. We I, we actually I think got a guide for 
that. So that would have been on a Saturday after Thanksgiving. I think we hunted that Friday morning with a guide and that Saturday morning with a guide. And hunting was average. It wasn't anything great. But, you know, it was a big deal to be hunting in Stuttgart, you know. So, yeah. It's almost like a duck hunter going to Disneyland, you know, as a kid. I remember my first time at Worlds, and yeah, it was just, even in Missouri, which is thought of as like a huge, huge hunting state, it's not in the side of the state that I'm from. It's a turkey hunting and deer hunting area, and I went down there, and there was, you know, 50,000 other waterfowlers down there, and it was just mind-blowing the first time that I walked down Main Street and had the competition, and it was a very, very unique experience, and I... You know, what you did with Josh, taking him down there, like, I haven't, I've taken my kids to Stuttgart, but not for Worlds yet, and it's something that I'm super excited to do for the exact memories that Josh is recalling. They're going to lose interest in it, you know, after a little bit. There's only so much duck whistle blowing that you can hear, you know, as a small kid, but it's the memory that you're building. Oh, yeah. I remember, like, it, walking through the tent. So I'll, I'll give you my first duck call experience. So we go that year. We walk through the duck call tent. And at that point, uh, you know, I've, I've had a booth there a few years. And um, I don't think I missed more than two or three years since I was 12 years old um, going to the world. Um, maybe a little more than that. But it's just like a drive. Um, that's kind of been a destination point for me. And I remember going to that, that tent the first year and Alvin Taylor had a booth set up and, uh, along with a bunch of other guys at that point, I mean, it'd be 50 or 60 call makers back then. Cause there was no social media and you know, all the outlets we have these days. And I remember walking into that duck call tent and for some reason we stopped at Alvin's booth and that, I don't know if you knew Alvin or didn't know him at that point, but we stopped at the booth. We're blowing calls. Dad's blowing some of his calls. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm 12 years old. I don't really know what's going on. But we picked out a, we, you know, picked out a cedar duck call from Alvin Taylor. And he bought it for me. And that was the very first duck call, like real duck call that I'd ever had. And so, thankfully, I still have it. And I don't know how it hasn't cracked at this point because I hunted with it for so many years. But I still have that Alvin Taylor cedar duck call from 19, whatever that was, 93, 94, um, in my shop. And, you know, that leads to a lot of other stories in the future that we won't, we don't have to cover right now, but. That was a pretty cool experience to have my first real duck call from Alvin Taylor. And he was there and dad blew it and said, yeah, this is, this is the call you should get. So we got that. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. I remember it well. I didn't really know, uh, Alvin before that. I knew of his calls, but I had never met him. I think that's the first time I met him. Um, well, yeah, the, I think the, the other, other duck call tent was, uh, did that time and it's been a while since I've been up there so I'm not sure how they do it now but you know that's the way the call makers sold their calls uh, they went to these shows and, and uh, 
you know, they have their booth set up and, and you blew through a call until you found one you liked. And my deal then was I really didn't care what a call looked at, looked like. Uh, I was way more interested in how it sounded and how it looked. And uh, so, you know, it was kind of fun to, you could go through there and, it's, you know, there were the big name call makers that, that I knew. And then there were other guys who, who you know, who had booths, who made calls. Well, they made some good calls uh, that you didn't necessarily hear about, you know. And so that's, that was really fun. I've got some calls from guys that were, you know, now they're, they're collectibles. But uh, then, you know, they just took them to shows and sold them. So it was fun. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, I mean, you know, we had some Grover Noel calls. Um, of course, Grover's still, you know, doing some things now. But I do remember I also that year got a Jojo Warski uh, Canada flute call. Yeah. And uh, so it's still to this day. I've got some more being made. But um, to this day, it's the only flute call I have. And we actually won, like, view signs. Uh that year and I had no idea that we were hunting snows and I was blowing my Canada <laughs> call. <laughs> yeah. John you know, went down on that Canada call out there laying in the rags hunting snow goose. Didn't have a clue. Didn't have an idea. I had no idea. But uh <laughs> shot my first goose and uh, it was not a Canadian. But uh <laughs> um Man, it was just, I mean, to think back on stuff like that, I mean, that's just, that's the fun of it. You know, and those guys and all that, they knew I was pulling a Canadian call. They didn't say a word about it. Never said a word. Never said a word. It didn't make any difference. We were watching thousands of geese, and we're going to be lucky to get a couple to come over. But that whole trip was was a start. I mean, there was a hunt before that that really got my start, but that that trip was the start of, you know, my waterfowl uh, journey per se. I get, I guess, is a fair way to say it, Chris. I was, I was gonna say, you know, number one, you guys were talking about the tent with the call makers and stuff, and how you would see call makers that you know you would never heard of because what you only had magazines back in the day that you might catch an article of somebody and then you would get your your max i don't i don't know when max started but like your bass pro catalog your cabela's catalog that people were in but you know even when we went to call a palooza a couple months ago i was like i've never even heard of this guy you know because he doesn't do social media but he builds a heck of a call and it's like man if this guy the way that things are done now versus back then like it's it's crazy to think about like you had to go to the shows for people to see your stuff like that yeah that was your only outlet there was no amazing uh... the other side of uh josh raggio's business where not only does he make a great call but he you know the social media aspect of producing a great product all around you know because what you do on social media is a product guys tune in dude i look every day to see what you're doing it's it's almost like the modern version of tv to us call collectors and call makers it's our entertainment you know well 
I, I appreciate that, Chris. Um, yeah, we definitely have different platforms than Bush and Rick and Greg and uh, Buck and yeah, you know, those guys had like in a day. Uh, we different. We for sure have a different platform to put our stuff out on. Um, you know, I, I feel like personally it's a good thing because um, you don't have to travel around, you know, to every single show available to put your stuff out there. And that's what those guys had to do back then. Like, you didn't know them unless they were, I mean, in 93, Dad, was there a Max catalog in 1993? I don't know. Well, Max was actually... Uh on the street, it wasn't on Main Street. It was, it, before they moved to where they are now, they had just a small store, a relatively small store, and Bush Richenbach's shop was right beside it. So uh, there's some guys who can tell you a lot more about all that, the Arkansas guys. But uh, the first few years that, that I went up there, uh, Max was just a small sporting goods store there in Stuttgart. And, Richard's shop, the Richard Tong shop was just right adjacent to it. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, 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 there's uh, yeah. a bit. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd say they've, they've done well for themselves, but, you know, speaking to your point, Chris, like, you know, we have so many more platforms now um, that don't cost us anything. And, you know, quite frankly, it's helped me build a business to where I am now. Uh, but yeah, yeah, you know, and I don't, I, I mean, I, I feel like those guys would have used those platforms if they were at them then to do the same thing. Um, yeah, probably would have. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's what they did for a living. They hand turned duck calls and wanted to get them out to as many folks as possible. And it's kind of the same thing I do now. So I agree, man. It, uh, it makes the world smaller. You know, without what we have now, you could be making calls down there in Mississippi and killing it, and I could be making them up here in Missouri, and we might never even cross paths. We might go to the same event, but not have the time to stop and talk to each other. And it, you know, it's very cool to have guys from all over the country that you're friends with, you know? And uh, it's just really interesting to, to hear the evolution and the history, and, you know, you... Ronnie, you were explaining how, uh, you know, what it was walking through the tent. And I was putting myself in that situation and thinking about it. And I was like, man, that's a situation that I've never even thought about is this is the only way that I, I got to see this stuff. Because we take it for granted now that I can just call up, you know, a Josh or a Brad Samples or anybody like that and have a conversation with them. Or, you know, jump on the phone and even do, like, a FaceTime. And they can be walking me through a process. Yeah, they, uh, you know, you could go from uh, Alvin Taylor's uh, table to Grover Knowles' table to Greg Hood's setup to, uh, let's see, a whole number of others I can't remember. And then there would be the guys from the Northeast that would always come down that, uh, you know, that I certainly would have never heard of unless I was seeing them at that show. So, yeah, it's evolved quite a bit since then. I mean, uh, but uh, those were fun times, you know. Uh, 
they always had a, a, a little bowl of Listerine on the table, so you'd blow the collar and dip it in the Listerine so you would spread germs, you know? So, <laughs> so Mr. That, that, how, ahead, many call, how many call makers do you remember being in that booth? Like, if you just had to guesstimate the uh, call makers' tents, how, how much would you, how many would you guesstimate? Uh, 20 to 30 at least. Uh, was it two tents or one tent? Well, there was one main callmaker tent. Yeah. And then the other tents would have maybe an odd man callmaker kind of deal, and then they'd have a bunch of other stuff, you know, hunting related type stuff. But uh, uh, the stunt guard folks could tell you more about all that than I remember. But uh, there was one main tent that had basically all the calls uh, a call maker set up in it. And of course, you know, part of that was self-defense because there's calls being blown at every table throughout the day, you know, so yeah. uh, people selling peanuts didn't want to be in that tent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Chris, can you imagine? So last time I went, I mean, it was eight to 10 max call makers there because of all the other platforms that are available now. Can you imagine, like, the top 20 to 30 call makers in the world being at one tent together? It's insane. Like, I I was just thinking about that when he, he said, you know, 30 call makers. I was like, I don't know if we had 30 at one time in one place, you know, in, uh, in May. You don't, and you won't, because it's uh, all the platforms that we have available now. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, I mean, I mean, take, for example, a, you know, John or, or me or whoever that has a backlog. I mean, we just don't have the ability to make a bunch of calls to go sit in front of a booth, right, and try to sell calls that are not on order. It's just it's, it's a different time. Um, but I tell you, those times were so cool and so fun to be around, see those guys, and hey, trust me when I tell you, they were all that well. Most of them were buddies, but there was some competition there in that duck call tent. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know it then, but I've heard all the stories now, and there was some serious competition going on back then. I was going to say, nowadays when we go to meetups, you know, you guys bring five, ten calls, whatever it is, and then sell them real quick. It wasn't. You know, back then you had to go to shows to really sell a good number of calls, so there was that competition. You're sitting next to somebody else's booth, and somebody's a customer is picking up their call, and you're like, "Hey, come over here and try this thing." It's, you know, it was a a blood sport. Where now, you know, you said you brought what 15 calls to uh, Call a Palooza, and they were sold before you know the first hour of the day was over, and that's probably an overestimate. And then you got to hang out. And talk to talk call makers, talk shop, you know, and talk to customers. Yeah. It was a, a more relaxed environment rather than, hey, I need this sale right now. So like, don't talk to me right now. I'm I'm busy. Like I, I gotta sell. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely it's a it's a different time. Um, it's not it's not quite as competitive as it was back then. Um, you know what I mean say that but however you know it is my livelihood so i do protect certain things of what i do right and there is like i mean there's a a competitive aspect of it however i pull for all the other guys um because quite frankly if you're gonna buy my call you're gonna buy 
X and X and X, you know, the other calls too. But back then, man, it was a, it was a cutthroat kind of, it, it wasn't a brotherhood like it has become today. Would you, would you agree to on that kind of? Well, I don't know. I, I just tell you my perspective of it, but I really wasn't in that circle so much. Uh, I got to know, uh, I, I feel like I became friends with some of the, the, the really good call makers and I, I cherish their friendships. Uh, but I, and I, I was, it just occurred to me that that was also about the beginning uh, when they started doing the CNC calls. So, like, in, in that first trip we made to Stuttgart, the majority of those calls were in that tent were hand-turned. And I was well, thinking, thinking just, just now, uh, so Alvin Taylor had a table full of calls. He probably had 50 calls on his table. And he was turning acrylics then. I think he was also turning some of the... Corian, maybe, and wood calls. And I was thinking today, what was those 50 calls that were sitting on the table? And he sold the, probably the most expensive call he sold that day was $125. I think that's what he got for his, uh, like the acrylics and stuff. The, the wood call that Josh got, I think it was about age 60 or so, 80, somewhere in there. Josh, I don't remember. But uh, anyway, what would those 50 Taylor calls be worth today? Uh, a lot. Uh, that we were looking <laughs> at, you know, and blow it through and, you know, and buy, uh, just money-wise, it'd be pretty valuable. So, Kind like 2020. You should you should have bought all 50 there, not just one. Uh, I should have <laughs> sold my car and hitchhiked home and bought all 50 calls. Yeah. Yeah, and then dealt with the repercussions when you got home. Right. Yeah. yeah sold the car that you were supposed to be living in after that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, literally, that's kind of how it was. I mean, 80 bucks for a car back then would have been, yeah. That's a hefty price. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, that was, uh, but, you know, those guys understood at that point what that time was worth and uh, what a hand-turned call was worth, and maybe they did or didn't see the CNC stuff coming, but they, you know, they valued their time, and, you know, Alvin was a, he was a, he was a son of a gun, like, he, he was, I mean, just like Butch, you know, Butch was very grateful to me, um, Kind of took me under his wing, and you know, I went up there a lot of times for call lessons on a Saturday morning at 4 a.m. But those guys were, you know, they understood what their time was worth, and they didn't just give it away back then. Well, um, they couldn't. Yeah. Well, they couldn't. Yeah. They and the same goes. Time. Yeah. No, you know, the same goes for today for the guys that do it for a living and hand turn stuff and understand what their their time is worth. Um, uh, you know, it's, you just can't, you just can't, I mean, you just can't give it away. Um, anyway, it's, it's, it's an art form that I learned back in 1993 uh, and I've built on since then uh, from a call making standpoint. And, um, you know, you just, you, just, you just have to understand that it's a craft and it's a dying art what we do is uh, is, is somewhat 
I consider it special. Um, I hope everyone else does too. Uh, you know, if they don't, then, you know, there's a Walmart option. There's a Bass Pro option and Cabela's and whatever else option. much cheaper. But what we do is uh, is kind of trying to continue that legacy that I saw at 12 years old in that call tent in 1993. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure, brother. And what I was going to say is you guys, you guys took this trip down there and saw this amazing experience. And uh, Mr. Ronnie, I have to say that you saw the best callers in the world out there and you thought to yourself, this is something that I want to do. <laughs> and you jumped into the uh, the competition calling scene after that? Yeah, I did. I, I don't know. I'm thinking back on, man, I didn't have a chance. But. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did. But, uh, well, I did. I There'll did. be a lot of guys listening to this that go, Ronnie Raggio is the best duck caller they've ever heard. I'm sorry. Anyway, go ahead, Dad. Well, uh, that's nice of you to say, but I, uh, like I said, I had a real interest in the calling, and so naturally I was interested in the competitive part of it. And, uh, you know, then and even now, the competitive part of the, the way to go about calling and doing the routine and everything is uh, a little different, a lot different than you would. Uh, hunting and so I had to learn that part of it Rick Dunn Butch helped me Rick Dunn helped me uh, a lot I went up to his shop a lot went to Butch's shop uh, Red Hood helped a lot and you know just kind of got with those guys that were making calls and and had done the competition thing Butch had won the world Rick had won the world Greg I don't think he won it but it was a great caller and uh, probably one of those guys that I don't know why he didn't win it, but I don't think he ever did. But he's a great caller uh, and call maker. But uh, anyway, so yeah, I kind of, and then I started going. I just went up to the Mississippi contest over here in Jackson uh, that year, about a couple of years later, maybe. And I just went and entered it. Didn't have a clue. I mean, did not have, I had nobody had helped me. I just, Listen to stuff that uh, tapes and stuff, and tried to kind of formulate a routine and blew in it. And the guys were nice, you know. It's pretty obvious I didn't really know what I was doing, but uh, I sounded, I guess, I sounded good enough. Some of them kind of offered to help, and so I started from that. And then I got to where uh, I actually never qualified for the world. I, I probably hold more second places than anybody else. <laughs> I never did it, but uh, I was really better at the, at the, what people call me calling or hunter type calling. That was kind of my forte, and I did win some of those, but uh, never qualified for the world. And but anyway, Bob Westerfield uh, was my, my friend, and he was running the Mississippi contest, and was also had the Delta Regional contest here. And we we had those were uh, at the trademark building, and it, it had those in conjunction with an outdoor type show, and uh, had those for several years. And uh, so that's kind of how I got to meet a lot of the guys who did this, uh, and became really good friends. Some of my best friends, and I only see them a few times a year or talk to them, but I consider them really good friends. Uh, I met while I was doing all that, you know. So, uh, I can say the same. 
a lot of my best friends yeah a lot of my best friends are good friends um quality friends from my competition duck call days highly underestimate how big of an ordeal it is to try to put on a contest like that? A labor of love type situation. Yeah. Well, I wanted to see it continue, and I wanted to see the uh, uh, the competition aspect of things kind of grow in Mississippi. Because historically, Mississippi's been a deer hunting state, and uh, you know nothing wrong with that. But we just hadn't had an organized type effort in the waterfowl area, uh, or didn't back then. And uh, so that's one way I could kind of you know, get back to things and hopefully kick it along. And I see some of the guys that, that are grown men now that were kids then that were blowing it out in our junior contest, TJ Mallet, uh, some of the kids from Arkansas would come down here. You know, they were nine, ten years old then. And, and I see what they're doing now, uh, you know, guiding and working in the waterfowl world one aspect or the other. It's a, uh, you know, especially though, you feel like I had a little influence on some of that. Well, I'll interject on that. You had a you had a huge influence on that. I think TJ will attest to that. Um, you know, I was I, I was fortunate enough to be Jimbo asked me to, to judge the B regional this weekend in Dallas, and so I went over there and judged that. And when I got introduced as a judge. Jimbo introduced me first of all as I uh, have a highly respect for uh, uh, this guy's dad. I blew in competitions with him, and I blew in contests that he was, uh, you know, over director of, and it continued from there. So it always starts with my dad, um, and that's a, you know for a guy like Jimbo to say that. 
um, it, it, it makes me think back and realize what an impact my dad had on some of those people um, the years that he did it. You know, you say TJ, you say Daniel Duke. You know, I think Daniel was pretty young when he started that. Wasn't that right, Dad? Yeah, and, yeah, Daniel. You know, coming, yeah. coming to Jackson. Tyler, Tyler, yeah. I mean, some of those, some of those names that you would associate with the best duck callers in the world. Um, he he won't say this. I'll say this for him. You know, really looked up to my dad because he's just such a compassionate and just a soft-hearted and open type guy. Like he wanted those guys there, and once they got there, he made them feel like they were it you know they might not have won but you know they get critiqued by the judges and all that but they always had my dad to fall back on and he would always go up to them and say you know man you did awesome keep working um you know take that criticism from the judges and build on it and when you look back at the guys that he kind of mentored I, I mean I wouldn't hesitate to say the word mentor because uh, I've heard a lot of guys mention that about my dad. You know, so, so these guys were uh, essentially kind of mentored by the director of the contest, and, he, you know, they made them feel welcome at 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. Um, now you see what they do today, and they have a huge impact on, you know, the waterfowl industry. Well, and that's one of the things about the contest that a lot of people just don't see, especially in, you know, I might be guilty of, uh, you know, helping promote the, the, the live stream side of it, is if you're physically not there, and especially if you're not involved, like, you don't see those relationships you know, you just see the little live stream or, uh, you know, the picture posted of the winner and stuff like that. And the 99% of being a competition caller or being at the competition involved in the community is lost just through seeing a picture of it. You know, it's like you lose what makes, you know, the whole competition something that you want to be around, the community. Yeah, I think there's a... Uh, because I mean there's a give and take Chris I think because of social media and this that and the other guys feel like they're going to be on blast for squawking in the world or regional or a state contest right and so there's a definitely there's a hesitation because I mean it's like a I consider it to a piano recital you got 100 people watching and you're the only person making noise at that particular moment and everybody hears every note. <laughs> and trust me, everybody knows when you make a bad note. And so there's a fear of it. But, you know, I think from my comp days, dad's comp days, he can certainly attest to it. From, I mean, good Lord, you know, dad got second place five years in a row in the Mississippi State contest. Like he gave it all he had. But sometimes it's just, you know, you just, it, competition makes you better, right? And you can't, the only way to overcome some of that fear is to get on stage and just give it all you got. Practice, 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 and then get on stage and say, all right, here's what I got. 
And if the nerves get the better of you, we'll learn from that. You know, don't let the nerves get to you next contest. And I saw a lot of that this weekend. Um, there was 13 callers in the BU contest for $5,000 first prize. <laughs> 13 Five guys. 13 guys. $5,000. Um, you know, and sitting in a judging tent, not knowing who's blowing, but sitting there listening, there's a whole lot of squawking that went on. Those are nerves. Those are nerves. And I think Dad can attest to this. You just got to get in there and blow in a bunch of contests because the next one, you're not going to squawk. Because the last time you were so nervous, the next time, this this time, you're not as nervous. So I think that's what holds a lot of guys back because um, you're you're on you're on point. You're, the spotlight's on you. The the light and the sound is just you. And but what they don't realize is all. So if you squawk, it it matters, but in the long run, it really doesn't because what he and I are talking about all these friends we made and guys we still you know talk to and you know guys we truly consider friends we made back in the bus when we went back they all laughed it's like huh you squawked yeah I mean you just gotta laugh at yourself at some point you know they've all been there they've all squawked too but if you don't get in the game you don't ever make those friendships Um, and they don't I mean they they can happen on the social media platform these days, but unless you're in that bus with those guys and you're you're going head to head and you're all in the same situation, it's true. I mean, it's competition, but I promise you, all those guys don't want you to squat. They're all rooting for you, and vice versa. When you get back in the bus, you blew a clean routine. You're hoping the next guy blows a clean routine. Nobody wants to hear anybody do bad. Not, you know, that's just not the, the. I mean, there's a there's a few bad apples, but in every, in anything you do, but the relationships and the friendships you make on that bus, there is there's no other explanation for it other than you just have to do it. Well, and, you, you know, there's a there's a commonality that you immediately have uh, through the love of duck hunting. And uh, all everybody, you know, that's doing that started out as a duck hunter and evolved into the, the competition aspect of it. And I think I finally realized that the reason I was even interested in the competition part of it is because it was just a way to extend the duck season, you know. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Duck and I, I hunted when there were thirty day seasons and eleven or two mallards, and so you had to do something. To uh, or something to to uh, extend your season. That's one way you could do it, and then meet all these great guys and, and talk duck hunting and calls and all that stuff. And I, I, after I, I kind of put the, the the competition aspect of it uh, in context with what I was really why I was really doing it, I, I had a lot more fun doing it. So. Yeah, you know. So uh, I'd love to kind of come back. I was I was surprised. Josh told me there were only thirteen guys in that contest out there, and like I said, first, he said first place was five thousand dollars. I, I mean, back when I was doing it, it was nothing to have forty or fifty callers uh, in a regional, you know. And uh, so 
And the, the prize was what? The prize was your ticket oh, to the world. The prize was to get to blow in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The big prize was five hundred dollars. So you know. Yeah. But uh, that's for first. But you know, uh, I don't know. I, uh, I'm not sure where it's headed. Uh, I, I'd like to see it. Maybe there's, you know, maybe a few changes could be made to make it a little more appealing to uh, the folks that are interested in that kind of thing. Now, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know. I'm kind of out of it now, but uh, I'd love to see it continue because it's a good thing. Well, Mr. Ronnie, while you were talking before that and Josh was talking, I had that question in my mind of when you were hosting regionals, I was going to ask you how many guys were entering back then. And then Josh said thirteen for five thousand dollars, and it kind of yeah. blew my mind that uh, you know that that's crazy. That's for a big big contest out there like that to only have thirteen. It's kind of staggering, especially with the the dive bomb competition they had last month being as big as it was. It uh, to me almost seemed like it was kind of making a comeback you know, being the first competition in over a year and stuff like that. But, man, I only have 13 turnout. That's kind of crazy. You would have thought there would have been a big turnout, yeah. It's well, like the, the thing, you're, the contest you're talking about, was that the online contest deal that was somebody did? They no, had, that was the one I said. I was going to go to. Oh, uh, so, I'll, you know, I mean, uh, Chris, you know me. We, we call a spade a spade, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> I don't really hold back. So the difference is the meat call is much easier to blow. Um, it doesn't take the level of expertise to blow a hunt call that it does a main street call. That's a whole different level of duck calling. And the risk-reward is uh, that the meat calls have grown so so rapidly because of the prize money and the prizes. Um, it's, it's almost deterred guys from comp- competition or competing in the main street stuff because it takes the next level of duck caller to do that. It takes the next level of duck caller to do that. Um, and it's very subjective uh, the meat color stuff personally do I love it absolutely if I was going to blow in a contest tomorrow I'd go blow in a meat color contest um, it's fun can you squawk on a meat call I mean you can but it's highly unlikely right yeah you're not, not going to squawk you're not going to squawk on your hails your you know your transitions uh, your step up uh, it's a duck it's call. Hell, we don't blow them, right? When you step into that Main Street competition stuff, it's the next level. And I just don't, I, it, it's uh, it's intimidating. Um, and maybe the meat call stuff has not made it worth the Main Street stuff. And I think the ballot, you know, the DU thing could possibly be a, a combination of things like location. Um, that's a pretty good haul from Mississippi. Arkansas, Tennessee, you know, I can make excuses for why there was only 13 callers there. Um, Because you'll have, when you show up at last chance, 
in Stuttgart, you'll probably have 40 or 50 cars there, which is legit and the way it should be. That make the me caller. I don't. I, don't I, I hesitate to call to say it's an easy thing, but it is what we do every day. Like the guys that just blow duck calls every day is what we do. We blow hunting calls. So, mm. Dad, you can disagree or agree, but um, it's fun. It's, it's, it's fun. However, what what we talked about earlier, there's a whole lot of that friend friendship stuff that you don't get and the rooting on and the, you know, lifelong friendships that you may not develop in that that you do with the mainstream stuff. Because hmm. the pressure well, is on, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I like the, the meat calling contest too. I, I, uh, that would, if I, uh, back in the day, there weren't many of those kind of contests actually. They were all kind of Main Street type contests and but uh, my idea of, of, of a calling contest would be whoever can sound like a refuge full of ducks, you know, uh, with one call. Or even the team stuff. I love the team stuff. I like listening to that or doing it. Because uh, two guys that really know what they're doing can sound like a whole refuge full of ducks. And that, to me, is uh, the coolest thing. Because yeah, that's what you're doing hunting, too, you know. So, uh, and, and maybe that's... A, because of that is you know people are kind of going in that direction it seems i don't know uh, i'm a little bit out of it but i i know they've i've seen some good participation in the hunting style calls and yeah i think yeah. people are a little more likely to enter something like that to just hunt and, and fool with a competition call so yeah it doesn't it doesn't really push you um no to, to those limits of obviously you were scared duck on Main Street you know I mean that's the bottom line however if you can do that kind of stuff we all know that you can run a meat call oh yeah with no, yeah. With no problem um, it used to be they used to laugh at folks they'd say oh, those competition callers they can't they don't know how to call duck well let me tell you <laughs> they can call duck before they can run a Main Street call yes yeah, oh and they uh I've always heard the the, the 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 statement I call ducks, not judges. Well, let me just tell you, if you can call judges, I assure you, you can call ducks. <laughs> Absolutely. I've always that's, said, yeah, John uh, Stevens. That's the best crap I've ever. That statement is a escape from, well, I don't really want to try the Main Street stuff. I'll just stick with, Main, with uh, meat coffee. <laughs> that's what that is. That's an excuse. Yeah. Tell me, tell me what a Main Street call, and I assure you, I will never question that she's what a Main call. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, my response is always, yeah, I'm sure John Stevens has never killed a freaking duck out in the wild before. Yeah. I think he knows his way around a duck call on he, stage or in the blind. I, yeah. I haven't heard of him much, but I've heard his name. <laughs> um, but I think he's pretty good from what I've heard. <laughs> Now, you guys were talking, you know, Main Street and meat. Do you think maybe it's a uh, this next generation and maybe the evolution? I started to get a little feedback from you um, as far as noise-wise. Do you think maybe it's like the evolution of the game and what maybe people are interested in? Um, maybe they, 
they don't want to jump into because the difference between you know you got your live duck which is becoming super popular meat it obviously is probably the most popular right now and then you got main street and i look at them like you're th- playing the same instrument but it's like playing classical guitar flamenco guitar and rock it you know maybe the shift has gone more to the the meat and the live duck as not so much a i don't want to jump into this format but maybe it's like a a shift you know how in the 50s music was different in the 80s music was different now music is different maybe it's an evolution of interest yeah, that's that's real possible. I think, I, and it might be the, the some of the well, what it comes down to is the folks in charge of the world are stuck. Or uh, might want to open their eyes a little bit and see what's going on, and you know, maybe it may take some modifications to improve the, uh, the what typically has been known as a competition style calling. You know, I don't know. Well, because I was going to say, you know, meat, obviously, for the average hunter and average caller is going to be able to jump into a meat competition and do better than they would if they've never blown a Main Street routine. But the the best meat callers in the world, you know, you're, you're Seth Fields right now, you're Domingo Sanchez, you're uh, uh, Corey Neacom, and heck, you know, Trevor Shanahan, all... I think every single one of those guys is placed in the top five in Main Street style. Right. So it, it's like they, they do both, but you're having to learn two different disciplines at once, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah I think it's a testament to society these days, not to get too deep in politics, but um, it takes a lot more work to master a Main Street call. So I would put that on myself. I'd put that on the call makers. Um, I don't make one. So how the heck can I, you know, give give one to a guy and then teach him how to do it? Sure, I can teach him the routine, but he's going to blow a different call, right? And I, and I do that. I'm glad to help with the routines. Um, you know, I think back in the day, you only had one choice. Now you have multiple choices and when you got multiple choices, uh, society says, well, let's go with the easy one. The easy one is the meat call, the two-man, right? They're fun. I personally love them. Um, I'm not downing those because I love them. Um, it's just so subjective from a judging standpoint. Um, so I think it's harder. So, Chris, can you blow a mainstream routine right now if I ask you to? Not a chance, buddy. Not a chance. Can you blow a meat call routine? It's not going to score real high, but I can try. <laughs> you could. You could. So that's the thing. It's like, um, do I devote all this attention and time to a mainstream routine when I could just be a good duck caller and compete and place in a meat calling routine? You know, and it's more fun. It's less special. But all, you know, all that. There was a meat calling routine at DU at Dallas this weekend. And I think it had 21 callers in it. And, um, you know, there were some guys, like, really nervous, like guys that were that I personally know. And I was like, man, how do you feel about it? It's like, man, I'm nervous. I'm like, dude, it's one of two regionals for a Main Street. Like, this should be totally take a deep breath, have some fun, blow your duck call, because that's what you blow 
60 days a year, right? Uh, when you're hunting. And so that's the, that's the difference. It's the next level of duck calling that people don't want to invest the time in or the effort. And I, again, I put that on me, R&T, uh, Echo, Refuge, because maybe we're not offering the instruction and the how-to or the call to even make you want to do that these days. So part of that, I, you know, I would take responsibility in that. Those guys may not, but I would. Um, because let me call it, it's just more fun. It's just, it's natural. It's what we do every day. It's how we call ducks. But I assure you, those, the Main Street guys, they don't just call judges. I assure you they can call ducks too. So I really, that statement, I just can't get over. I just, uh, <laughs> well, well you know, I, I think you're more likely to get a, a bigger, just like you just said, there were 13 in the regional and there were 21 in the hunter or meat competition or hunter competition, whatever they called it. Um, yeah. You know, it's seven eight more guys blowing in that contest. You get, you're going to get more participation just because of the nature of the calling and the guys that hunt say, well, I, I can do that, you know. And that's yeah. what I'd like to see. I'd like to see more guys doing it. And then from that, if they, if they want to take it to that next step to do, do the other Main Street style calling, then they can do it, you know. Uh, but the, those hunter competitions or meat calls will attract a lot of guys that might move on and do the other if it, if it you know. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. It's a great entry point uh, that was never there when you started. Right. Uh, I mean, you kind of had to. That's all it was. But, uh, yeah. And, you know, and the, the grant, you know, the end statement is it's a way to extend your duck season. That's the only reason we all do it. Um, it's just like, you know, retriever trials, you know, HRC, um, AKC. You do that to extend your duck season. Um, we get all into the deep depths of it, but there's a, there's a certain amount of us that enjoy waterfowl year round. And if that's how we have to get our waterfowl, then that's what we're going to do and meet great people while we do it. That's the bottom line. Well, I was thinking about one of the contests that that I blew up. I think it was in Pocahontas, Arkansas, for two or three or four years. They hosted what they call the World Team Duck Call Contest. So Milton Holcomb and I went up there a year, one year, and blew at it. And so uh, Keith, no, uh, Kent Cullum and Christian Curtis were first. Uh, Keith Allen and Charles Petty were second, and Milton and I were third, and there was one point that separated each of us from first through third. So those were some guys that were really good callers on the competition stage, but they were, you know, they were really good at the other stuff too, so. And I would say, if, you, if you're listening to the podcast, uh-huh. if, you're, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know those names, go look them up. That, those yeah. were the six, six of the top six of the world at that point. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, you know. And, and it, I remember that contest being so much fun. Uh, 
I don't know. Maybe there's a little less pressure. I felt a little more confident doing that kind of thing. And you got a partner there, and you kind of cover each other's mistakes or whatever. But we actually practiced a lot for that. Milton and I, we practiced a lot. And uh, so, you know, we were then a pawn or two of winning it. But uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you were talking about the uh, the main street being tougher, Josh. And I, I, I agree. It's that different format. And maybe it's one of those things that I got super bad echo coming through again. Um, it's one of those things that it was so expensive to drive around now and go place to place. And regionals and contests are getting fewer and far in between. Like, I'm very blessed to live where I live at, Missouri. I'm within three hours of every major competition aside from Easton. But, uh, you know, the guys that are, you know, a little bit further away, where you have to have a lot of stage time in that Main Street style, and you have to have a lot and lot of work. And... You know, if you're in Arkansas or Missouri near like a, a big time call maker in Tennessee, something like that, Mississippi, where you can go work with a call maker or a competition caller and really build that skill up, like you're blessed. But if you, you know, say you live out in West Texas or Arizona or, you know, something like that where you're a ways away from somebody that meat calling coming to you more naturally because you're a duck hunter. Maybe that's why it's it's shifted because you have to you have to travel so far. I mean, you have Rogers, Utah, um, the Iowa Burlington competition. I mean, like the big big um, Main Street competitions, you know, are, are getting farther and farther in between, you know, distances. Maybe the meet is the way that the future is going because of the availability and the natural, you know, calling that uh we as hunters have practiced you know just out in the blind and stuff like that yeah that's a good point chris i i think echo rick and don and and echo guys and and, uh, jimbo and and john was rich and tone i think they do classes some don't they josh with for the guys that are interested in it uh and I, i i distinctly remember when Rick was help, Rick Don was helping me some. His his rule of thumb was you needed to give yourself three years of blowing in a lot of contests to be really competitive. So that that kind of gave you an idea of what the level of competition was at that point. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm not just not sure where it is now, just because I don't know. But uh, I'm not saying it's not. But uh, anyway. Yeah, I agree. You know, there's a, but for $5,000, um, you know, if you got 21 in a meat calling contest and 13 in a regional, why didn't the other eight blow in the regional? Yeah. For five grand. Uh, when a meat calling contest, the top prize was only 500 bucks. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the sanctioned contest paid out three places. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a, a, a fear level there. And uh, uh, I would put it back on the call makers, you know, us, me, as to not giving enough advice and pointers and pushing towards that direction. But we can be a dead horse all day. Let's move on. <laughs> 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 right on. Right on. Well, 
Hey, buddy, we're up on that hour mark that I know you were wanting to shoot for. And, dude, we have so much left to cover. Do you want to break this thing into two of them? How much time do we have? Uh, we're right now, we're at 63 minutes. And uh, I know you were trying to cut off at 7. It's 7.13 right now. I think we're good, if you're good, Chris. Okay, okay. I know I got about 25 minutes left to record on this episode, but like I said, we can break it up into two. Um, it's just no, kind let's of... Go, let's go. Okay, right. cool. Are you good? Cool. Going on? 25 minutes? All right, right on. Yeah, about, about 20 more minutes or whatever. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, yeah. so we get into this competition calling thing. You know, you, you move up to the regional, and uh, man, I don't know what that noise is. Are you guys watching the baseball game over there? No, no, I'm at it. Alright, It might just be feedback from me. Um, anyway, so you get into that stuff, and realistically, that's, you know, it gets Josh into competition calling, being around you being Mr. Ronnie into competition calling and working on all that stuff. Um, it's kind of the formation of Raggio Calls. What was it like watching Josh? Did he, did he come to you? saying hey i dad i think i'm gonna i'm gonna get into turning calls obviously i've been hunting all my life and you know been into the competition calling game like i think i kind of want to make these things for myself yeah uh well yeah i mean we always had conversations about it and as it got started with making them uh i guess we talked some about it but uh you know, if you know Josh, he's kind of one of those guys. If he starts into something, he's like 140 percent into it. So <laughs> he uh, did what he needed to do to learn how to make them. I, you know, I, I really couldn't help him much in the way of the mechanics of the call making. I, I, I guess if I contributed, it was the how to blow them and, and what they all sound like, and you know, the mechanics of the call I understood. So. Uh, did you ever I mean obviously he's your son so you're gonna have you know I hold my kids in the highest respect did you ever see him being where he's at I'm sorry I, I'm getting a lot of feedback now I'm not sure what you said and go okay um yeah I, you know he was uh, when he started making calls, I think he would tell you he was just doing one to turn a few and just to do it. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, I guess his first, I have his, I think I have his second call he turned, and he has his first, and a buddy has the third, maybe. But, uh, uh, so I guess it's, I encouraged him, but, but I mean, he had a full time job. And, and so, uh, from my perspective, folks started wanting, you know, wanting to turn a call for him, and it just kind of blew up from that. Uh, and I guess, Josh, you got to a point where you had to make a decision between keeping this a hobby or and, and, uh, continuing into uh, corporate world versus uh, making this a, uh, a business you could develop for yourself. So, uh, you know, uh, Seems to have gone well. Yeah, like I, I remember turning those first few calls and like the first, I don't know, 10 or 15 or 20, and I'd haul butt down to my parents' house and show them what I made. You know, it's like you need your parents' validation of 
even though you're 35 years old or 33 or whatever it was, it's like, look what I just did, you know? And, and of course your parents are, you know, on board and they're like, Oh yeah, that's awesome. And this, that, and the other. But, uh, uh, yeah, you know, to get to the point where you do it for a living, um, you know, like I think I've told the story before on watch the podcast. I don't know if I've done it on yours, Chris, but you know, we had a family meeting and, you know, kind of laid out what was going on in the corporate world and uh, said, I think it's time to make that jump. And, you know, thankfully, everybody was on board. You know, we would put pen to paper and all that kind of stuff and um, certainly not get rich. But, you know, fortunately, I could pay my bills with two kids and a wife and that type of stuff. But, uh, you know, I'm very thankful for parents that were supportive of a very crazy idea. Uh, you know, it's one thing where you're single and you're not married and you don't have any, real, uh, you know, real expenses. And it's another thing when you have a family and you say, I'm going to quit my really good corporate job that pays really good right now. <laughs> and I'm going to go make duck calls for a living. That's a whole different story. But they'd watch it evolve. Um
you know, you read something uh, on uh, comments on social media, it might be written by a 14-year-old teenager who uh, really doesn't know much about anything and just, you know, and I, and I come to believe there are people who like to just start fires and, you know, so I, I really learned to not pay much attention to about 95% of that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, I remember a time or two when I, I thought about asking Josh if I, he wanted me to call Cousin Guido to go pay a visit to somebody. <laughs> It was bad, Chris. Like I, you know, there's not there's some of the new guys now that just don't understand. Um, well, I'm glad new, new call makers uh, went through back then. Yeah, um, I'm glad okay. to see it's just kind of moved on from all that. And I think uh, it's just yeah, one of the no one of the things. It wasn't so much call makers. It's just a, a feature of the social media stuff that makes it too easy to criticize and not. Uh, not ever show your face, you know. So uh, yeah. that's the obvious downfall of it. So. You can sit behind a keyboard and say whatever you want. But Chris, I mean, I have guys like going to my Facebook and taking pictures of me and my wife on Facebook and making memes or memes or whatever you call them. Yeah, it, it was brutal, man. It was it was really tough, and um, you know, I. Uh, should have kept should have kept a list like this, but I didn't. But uh, you know, um, it's not the way it is today. And I'm a proponent. I don't comment. I don't verbalize a lot of my stuff on social to the new call makers and this, that, and the other. But when they call and ask for advice or whatever, you know, um, you know, I, there's certain things I don't talk about, as you know. But there's other certain things. Obviously, I have a mobile shop. <laughs> I'm going to open a book to certain things. So, I mean, hell, you can watch me turn to that call if you want to. Um, so, you know, I, I, as a parent now, I put myself in my parents' position and go, man, y'all really had a, a level of uh, respect and uh, just kind of above all that because they're, they were on social media too and they read it. So I'm very I'm I'm proud of my parents, but very appreciative of my parents for the stance they took on that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, I'm hell, I'm forty. It's not like I'm you know fifteen, but still, you know, you always want your parents' approval, and um, you watch your family have to go through that with you. And I can take it. You know, you can say whatever you want to about me. Obviously, I've had everything in the world said about me, and. Uh, I take it with a grain of salt, but when your family has to watch it, that's a whole different deal. Well, and that's, you know, one of the things that, uh, when your dad was speaking that I felt, you know, my kids come home and will, and will tell me somebody, you know, was picking on them or something like that. I'm like, show me where they're at, you know, let's go. Like, you know, that kind of mindset, you know, it's tough as a parent to, to hold that back and and know that it's part you know obviously what you went through is different you're a grown adult and uh you know it's not little kids picking on you at school but that's almost the mindset that it's become in this new generation and mr ronnie said yeah it could be a bunch of 14 year olds saying it and you know i'm not I, i don't know i'm seven years younger than you josh so you know a little bit different time wise but not much i'm kind of one of the last generations that had that we i think we got social media the year that i graduated 
Like, so, it wasn't a thing when I was growing up. If you said something to somebody, you were getting punched in the parking lot type thing. <laughs> you know, and that doesn't exist anymore. So, people just jump on their little keyboard and say whatever they want. And now seeing my kids get older, I don't know how I, that I'm going to be able to handle that. And it speaks a lot to you, uh, Mr. Ronnie, that, you know, the way that you were able to handle that. And I'm sure that, you know, Josh had to tell you more than once to uh, just don't, <laughs> you know. Well, uh, you know, I, 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 and like you, you have young children. Josh has young children. I worry, uh, you know, what's ahead. There's so much opportunity on those things for bullying. And uh, I think you guys as parents and me and we as grandparents uh, have to really be careful uh, and watchful of what our children are exposed to on, uh, you know, on all that stuff. Uh, they can really be protective of them. Because it's just too easy for the, especially the bullying type stuff to go on. Uh, so anyway, why don't we move on to something else? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was a tough. It was a tough couple of years. Let's just put it that way. I can understand uh, that. I can understand that. So as far yeah. as you know, Josh really getting deep into uh, deep in the call world and going full time, like. Is, is that something that, you know, as a little kid, you're like, you know, you can tell. Some of them are go-getters and motivated, and some, you know, some of the kids, you know, I have three. I I can tell who my entrepreneur is going to be. Is that something you knew from an early age? Like, I don't know. That's a question for Dad. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I'm asking him. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, let's see. You know, I, not really, not necessarily. Uh, like I said, he, Josh was always kind of one of those kind of persons that was, I mean, if he was going to do it, it was like 110% all in. And uh, I mean, I believe me, I've watched, I've seen a whole bunch of different things where he was 110% in, including the bullfighting and riding and all that stuff. And so, you know, you just kind of got to, uh, you know, being a parent, you just uh, try to give some guidance and hope they survive it for the most part, you know. So, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I, I, I think I saw some early talents with it and interest with it. And uh, uh, But I never, honestly, didn't ever think he'd end up making duck calls for a living. That never crossed my mind. So, but, you know. Doing good with it. Absolutely. Well, and it, I feel like. <laughs> thanks, Dad. <laughs> hey, go ahead, buddy. Sorry about that. I said, thanks, Dad. <laughs> I, just, uh, <laughs> I, I have a great picture of me coming out on top of a bull and he's buying the sheets. And uh, you can just tell on his face, he's like, what, what is my son doing? <laughs> <laughs> like, so, I want to be a bull rider. Yeah, that was, you know, what I wanted to do at that point in my life, so I was going to do it 110%, and he knew that, and so he was going to show up and make sure I didn't get, or, well, if I did get hurt, he was going to be there, but, uh, yeah, he's always, he's always, I, I feel like I'm not a, like, I'm between a black sheep and a, my parents just don't have a clue what I'm about to do next, 
but they always support, supported what I was going to do. Uh, you know, I, you know, nothing about black sheep, no, nothing like that. But, <laughs> but, uh, well, I remember when you got a Harley. I wish you'd have gone back to bullfighting. I thought, well, that'd be simpler, uh, safer. <laughs> I, I went through a motorcycle phase. Uh, yeah, before kids, before kids. Uh, yeah, but before kids, I think you you were married. But uh, I yeah. thought, well, I never wished to go back to bullfighting, but I think I'd rather that than ride the motorcycle. I thought it was safer. But anyway, you guys will come to that as your kids get older. Yeah, I can't wait. Uh, but I, you Chris, know, I, I fought bulls. Uh, I fought bulls professionally for a couple of years, and probably would still be doing it, honestly, if I could make a living at it. But uh, just couldn't. Um, but that was where so dad has a cattle farm and I grew up around cows and you know it, it, it all of a sudden I found my niche for a couple of years and uh, it, it, just, it just didn't pay the bills let's just leave it that way and there's yeah, probably not a yeah. big retirement in that game yeah no, no, but if longevity so you know not that great either so but I, you know, I never worried too much. I mean, I was around cattle and stuff all day. I never really worried about too much about it because uh, he's a good athlete, and that's kind of what it took to do that. And he was really good at it. Uh, so you know, uh, I saw him save more than one or two uh, boys that get would have gotten hurt pretty bad. So he was good at it. But I was kind of glad he stopped doing it. But, but, and you know, back also the much safer option. That's true. Yeah. I was gonna say there's something to be said about growing up on a farm and working on a farm that builds that work ethic, you know. Because I know you work like a madman, Josh, and uh, you know Jessica, my girlfriend, she grew up on a cattle farm and she works every second of the day. And somehow I grew up in the city and still have that mindset. But you know, there's something to be said about people growing up on a farm and working a farm that really just builds that work ethic that reflects in the rest of life, no matter if you go down a completely different path. Yeah, yeah I, would, I, I would contribute that. Yeah. <laughs> I contribute that all to Dad. Um, yeah, I watched him work, uh, you know, 40 hour work week with the state, and then go to the farm after that, and then all weekends. Um, so and and you know I was there on the weekends as a young kid and as I got older and I mean it was kind of just all I knew. Um, it was kind of weird when I met my wife. They had Sunday lunch together, and you know obviously as I date my wife, you know I kind of had to go. But I would say you know at one or two o'clock like hey, like I I gotta go. Like, I've got stuff to do. Well, her family didn't, didn't have stuff to do. And, like, it was a really interesting um, aspect because, I mean, we just, I don't know, we worked, like, we, dad worked seven days a week. And that was, I mean, it was kind of, it was just all I knew. And so, uh, long story short, when you get into the duck call business, um, it's kind of all I know. Like, I just work. 
Um, thankfully, I love what I do. You know, I heard yours and Michael's conversations about getting burned out. You know, maybe I'm a, the oddball out, but like I don't get burned out on making duck calls. Um, I love it. Uh, keep it to a check. You know, I can't make 10 calls a day, obviously. But I love what I do, and I equate that back to my dad loved what he did in his 40-hour-a-week job. He loved what he did on his farm. And we worked seven days a week. You know what we did on Thanksgiving and Christmas? We went to the farm to check on cows. (laughs) So there's no days off. And he instilled in me, um, good or bad, you know, thankfully my job is at my house. You know, my kids can run through my shop, right? But he instilled in me a work ethic that kind of still lives today. And, you know, there, there's a competitive side of me um, in the duck call world. You know, I feel like if I'm working on Sunday, maybe somebody else isn't. And I get one day ahead of that person. And that's all due to my dad um, and my mom. My mom worked you know, uh, 40-hour work week two, teaching. But she also had two side gigs. You know, she was very creative. She'd be doing pottery or painting this or building that. And so there's a little bit of the creative aspect for my mom that came into that and the work ethic. But also my, seeing my dad work seven days a week, like there was just not a day off. And to get to grow up like that I don't know blessing or curse it just is what it is and I that's just who I am um dad you may can speak more to that from a good or bad standpoint um yeah there's you know there's the pluses and minuses of that uh, you know you look back on it at my age and you wish you maybe you would have done less I tried never to miss a dance recital or ball game or any of that and I, and I missed very few of them you know I, but it took a lot uh, uh, but, but I guess the thing I would say about it is I, I enjoyed my work with I worked in the mental health field and I really I really enjoyed that helping uh, uh, aspect of, of of that work, and but I always loved the cattle. Uh, the cattle business was more of a hobby to me, and uh, so it was my getaway. Uh, uh, you know, from a personal standpoint, uh, my forty hours a week. Uh, could be pretty trying at times, but uh, so that the being around the cattle and doing things to you know with hay and planting grass and all that for cattle was was like a getaway and you know, it's more of a hobby and uh, also earned some extra money too. But uh, all right, buddy. Well, we're coming close up on our time. I want to break this thing into two segments because there's so much of your guys' life that we haven't even dug into yet. I was reading an article in 2018 that uh, Delta put out about you guys hunting together after your father's transplant, Josh. Uh, you know, what was what was uh, going on with that? It might be something we have to touch on next episode. Yeah, man. It was uh, pretty incredible. That was obviously pretty, you know, very sick at the point. And 
the story that leads up to his transplant and you know after that is pretty incredible so we'd love to tell that at some point love to hear dad's perspective on that too so absolutely buddy i appreciate you guys coming on here man mr ronnie it was a true honor i really really enjoyed this and i loved that it was last minute and that we had no idea what was going on it i like being uncomfortable i love being uncomfortable and just trying to like figure stuff out on the fly and uh it was amazing i appreciate your time sir thanks for having me chris i appreciate it yeah I'm so honored that this is the first podcast that you've done. And uh, like I said, I'm, it was just a pure honor, sir. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate you, man. Absolutely, Josh. We, uh, Very we, special. Yeah, buddy. I, I, I really enjoyed it, and I cannot wait for part two. And I know everybody's going to love this one. And uh, I know you guys are missing out on some baseball right now, brother. And uh, I'll let you guys jump in there and catch up on some baseball. And I'll holler at you, uh, you know, here in the next week or so. And we'll get this next one rolling. All right. Hail safe. Thanks, Chris. All right. You guys take care. The Raggios, guys. Man, what an episode. It was uh, such a great time. And like I said, Josh hit me up and we were doing an episode like 10 minutes later. So very, very cool. Um, Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Hit subscribe. Share this thing. Like this thing. Do all that normal stuff. Um, If you loved it, tell your friends. If you hated it, tell your enemies. And uh, at least get them to listen to it. Uh, BTBN, check out Raggio Calls. Check out Paperweight um, Unstable Calls if you want to. And I hope you guys have a good one.